2: You really can't break down what is the U.S. spending in defense of Europe as opposed to what is the U.S. spending in it to advance its own interests globally. That's nearly impossible to do. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and
1: Jason Fields.
0: Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO, is nearly 70 years old. It was created after World War II, during the Cold War. It faced off against a Soviet-led bloc called the Warsaw Pact. Now, many of those Warsaw Pact nations are part of NATO. The United States is tugging at the threads of the alliance... President Trump is accusing allies of freeloading off the United States. So, what's the real state of NATO? Kathleen Hicks is here to help us to get to the bottom of it. She's the director of International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining us.
2: Happy to be here.
0: If we can just start off with the most basic thing of, of all, what is NATO's central mission? Sure.
2: Well, um, first of all, NATO, as you said, was formed at the end of World War II. So in, in its earliest origins, it did have a strong focus on bringing Europe in a united way into a more liberal or democratic uh, period of time following you know, the, the, the destruction of Europe during World War II. Because of the evolution of the Soviet Union as, a, as an enemy, it, it quickly found itself focused on ensuring that no foreign outside power, and Russia was the most obvious one that might threaten it, could could come into Europe and disrupt that, you know, new era of growth and prosperity and, and democratic freedom. So, Today, looking back 70 years, it maintains that focus on uh, on a Europe that is whole and free, if you will, that is not uh, able to be have its sovereignty impinged upon from the outside. And it's done in a transatlantic unity with the United States and Canada, focused on the freedom and security of Europe. NATO has evolved to have a couple purposes beyond the security of Europe itself, and that is to obviously have a self-defense element. You hear a lot of talk about that, which is both defense of Europe, but defense of any member nation. So it came into play on 9-11 when the United States was attacked. That is the one and only time that NATO has invoked um, the mutual self-defense approach, and it provided NATO countries and NATO itself provided capabilities to the U.S. And then as we saw in Afghanistan, where NATO was engaged um, as part of the U.S. It was a NATO-led mission, but a part of a U.S. begun mission. Um, It has the ability and the mission to build collective security outside the borders of Europe.
0: That's actually interesting. If you're talking about Afghanistan, you're talking that almost seems like carte blanche to work anywhere around the world now. Is that right?
2: Well, it has to be agreed upon. So there's 29 members of NATO, um, so it has to be a carte blanche that 29 countries believe fits within that strategic concept of protection. And, again, the Afghanistan mission was an outgrowth of 9-11. It was was the response to an attack on the United States, so it invoked Article 5, and then the mission that followed, the U.S.-led mission, um, that became a NATO mission in Afghanistan really was a follow-on to that sense that a member had been attacked and the source of the attack, in that case Osama bin Laden, had had uh, received safe haven from the uh, the government of Afghanistan. And so that was sort of the origin of the Afghanistan mission. It's, it's generally speaking pretty hard to get NATO members to find a compelling reason like that. And Afghanistan is a pretty singular example. The other that people would point to that maybe is more questionable, if you will, is the Libya operation, where NATO undertook an operation to protect civilians after there was unrest following Qaddafi's ouster from power. And that led ultimately, not not by NATO's hand, but to the internal toppling, if you will, of Gaddafi, And then NATO didn't follow that with the with a plan for stabilizing the country. And so many people would point to Libya as an example, where NATO maybe did get a little further out of its mission space, um, but it did it under this view in its own view about protecting civilians and viewed that as part of its mission set.
0: That raises one other question for me, which is, in the case of Libya, not all NATO countries participated, right? There, uh, the French and British were the primary actors, if I remember correctly. And so in the case of any NATO mission, other than, let's say, perhaps the invasion of Europe by Russia, something super dramatic like that, are NATO countries compelled to contribute to defense or missions like this?
2: I think this is one of the hardest things to understand about how the treaty is set up and then how it's executed the the way the 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 treaty establishing nato was set up it is it, it to be a member you have signed up by virtue of being a member to contributing so there is an expectation when you are accepted as a member that you are going to contribute so um you know it's not a compelling in the way people think in terms of an enforcement mechanism and i'll come back to how nato operationalizes it but it is it is the grounding principle upon which peop, you know different countries become members is that they will contribute, and every and the, the reality is every NATO nation contributes in some way. And and today's terms we often talk about that in three ways: cost, um, capability, and contribution, meaning contributions of military personnel. So for going back to the Afghanistan example, you'll see many countries that maybe can't spend as much as others or choose not to spend as much, but they are contributing forces on the ground. Or you'll see in the case of capabilities, maybe they're a Navy-heavy country. Or as the Libya example points out, maybe they're a country that has advanced aircraft um, or intelligence assets. And so they can contribute those capabilities. So that's there are different ways in which to contribute, but there is absolutely a grounding expectation in the treaty that all nations who are parties to the treaty are contributing.
1: So this this idea that a country needs to pers- to contribute 2% of its GDP or spend 2% of its GDP on its military uh, it is not kind of a hard and fast rule of NATO then?
2: No, it's not. Um, wh- what happened to get to what what people hear these days is the two percent, which is about spending two percent of your GDP on defense, is several years ago, and in particular in the context of coming out of Afghanistan, there was this question. It was bef- about what was the purpose of NATO, right? We had at that point we, we you know there was a general view that Russia wasn't much of a problem. Um, we were coming out of this. You know what seemed to be a successful use of the NATO alliance to support one of its members, the United States, in a mission, military mission in Afghanistan. But we were at that point drawing down significantly in Afghanistan. So, and this is roughly 2014. You you see NATO sort of try to start having an internal conversation about what it means to contribute because during Afghanistan, what it meant to contribute was, are you sending capabilities and people to Afghanistan? Um, And are you, when others are sending capabilities and people to Afghanistan, maybe you're a country that's providing security inside Europe while others are away. So that had been the the context. So coming out of that, the question came, well, you know, we didn't have Russia invading Ukraine at that point. What what is the purpose of NATO and how do we think about it? And the general view was, well, what we know we know is that the military capabilities will be important. Um, in the future, we know we believe in the alliance collectively as a, as a force for uh, common security. So how do we lay down a measure for what we all do? And they came up with internally this idea of 2% of GDP as a way to keep member states um, engaged on defense issues in their own domestic context and thinking ahead to how to transform, if you will, capabilities for future missions. Um, And the way it was said in a pledge um, that came out of the Wales Summit in 2014 is NATO states um, shall have as a goal to reach 2%, um, and I believe the year was 2022, of their GDP. And it was one of several different um, so-called investment pledges made by member states. And then enter the 2016 presidential election cycle in the United States, and it built upon frustrations from the Obama cycle, this Obama team, about burden sharing and kind of took off as a singular focus of energy around this discussion of burden sharing.
0: So what's going on right now with uh, President Trump in the most recent NATO summit, which was very loud? is not actually new.
2: It's not new. There had been, as I said, coming out of that Wales Summit and uh, and in the ensuing years in the Obama... First of all, burden sharing has always been an issue. Um, It was very prominent in the 1980s, coming from the Democrats, actually, in the United States, um, after the end of the Cold War and the view of the desire for a peace dividend. um, There was a heavy emphasis on making sure... Uh, Europeans were bearing their fair share. And it's never left us as an issue. Um, the 2% itself became an issue during the Obama years because that's when NATO adopted it as a measure or as a goal. Um, and so there, when Bob Gates left as Secretary of Defense, I believe that was 2012, he gave a pretty searing speech on the need for NATO countries other than the U.S. to pick up more of the share of burden and then that theme was carried on even after he left inside the obama administration so it was it was when it came around to the 2016 election cycle it was hitting pretty fertile soil inside the united states as a talking point what became unusual in the 2016 cycle was it became the talking point and it it, it was ne- it was no longer part of a overall conversation about the the mutual benefit of security and then the need to have burden sharing. It just became about burden sharing.
1: So what would happen if the U.S. decided to leave NATO? Does NATO exist without the United States?
2: It doesn't. Um, It's, you know, a a U.S.-led effort. Um, It's very much about transatlantic crossing the Atlantic, the U.S. and Canada with Europe. Without the United States, um, you have what already exists you know, and and except Canada, which is the EU, and the EU has a security element, but it has always been built in a way that is complementary to NATO and focused, for instance, on things like border security, um, intelligence, but not on military capabilities. And what you have seen in the last few years, in particular, has, is a, is a growth in interest within Europe, if you will, as a hedge to the United States potentially either pulling out of NATO or not being interested in NATO in in using the EU mechanisms as a way to develop collective approaches.
0: If you boil it down, does the US actually foot the bill for the defense in Europe? Is that accurate to say or is that an overstatement?
2: It's definitely an overstatement. The United States does spend more in on defense than than any other country in the world and in You know, in in large part, that is because we have a global um, both economic and security footprint that we're looking to advance. So that part's true. And it is true that part of that security investment that's, uh, you know, the largest in the world, you can you can think about as focused in part on mutual security interests with Europe, whether that be Europe itself or other other parts of the world where we're looking to advance economic and security interests. That said, the second largest spender in the world on security is Europe. Um, If you take these small states and add them up, they're spending more collectively than Russia. Um, And so, You know, it's cutting off our nose to spite our face, if you will, to to try to alienate them when they, in fact, are making a significant collective investment. And together we are quite strong. So there's no way to really break down the U.S. spending. I know the the president has used some figures, but you really can't break down what is the U.S. spending in defense of Europe as opposed to what is the U.S. spending in it to advance its own interests globally. That's nearly impossible to do. Um, but what you can say is that the Europeans are themselves investing quite a bit as well. And if we work together on our interests, whether those are in Europe or elsewhere, uh, we have a lot more sway than if we're divided.
1: What do you see as Germany's role?
2: In NATO or generally in Europe?
1: Yes, in, in, in NATO <clears> specifically. <throat> so, what, is, what is Germany's role in NATO?
2: Yep, so I think, you know, again, it's easy to lose sight of history. That the, coming out of World War II, the, the antagonist in the European context for World War II was not the Soviet Union; it was Germany. And so, part of the origin of NATO was about what people will say colloquially is keeping Germany down, keeping Russia out, and keeping the U.S. in. Uh, And the keeping Germany down part was incredibly important to its neighbors uh, and at the time to the United States because Germany had shown a propensity through two world wars um, to use military power in an expansionist, nationalistic expansionist way. The very design of NATO and the way the U.S. um, led approach to West Germany, developed it as an economy and as a nation, really um, put a, a very small investment footprint into its military for these reasons. And the obvious parallel to that is the same thing we did with Japan. So both Germany and Japan grew through the Cold War in their economic side, in their uh, embrace of democracy, moving away from nationalistic approaches, but we essentially kept down in both cases, their military power. So here we are 70 years later and there's this now reverse dynamic, I think, going on where everyone looks at that uh, or some are looking at that and you know are now quite frustrated with Germany for not picking up its fair share on defense. And they do underspend. They are not in good shape. Their forces are not ready. So they're not meeting the 2% when I say they are underspending, but I think it's unfair to point to that without pointing to the incentive structure we created ourselves for them and for very good reasons, historically grounded reasons. So the Germans know they have a problem in terms of their defense quality and capability. They are moving in the right direction. They're increasing spending. Um, In some ways they were hurt, if you will, by having their economy do better than projected. So that means that their percent of GDP on defense is growing more slowly than it would if their economy were doing worse. So that's a perverse incentive right there. So part, in other words, part of the Germany problem is that they're strong economically. Um, And so they are kind of marching up a pathway to get to 2%, which which was the Wales Summit agreement, not to be at it today, but to be there in the 2020s. And so now their focus, I think, has turned to how to build up real capability on the ground, in the air, and on the sea, under the sea, by giving themselves capability benchmarks to meet in the near term. That will be very hard for them to achieve, but I think they have the right goals for themselves.
0: I guess this really does show how old the alliance is, that the role of Germany and how people view Germany has changed so dramatically dramatically. (laughs) you know, from keeping them down to wishing they would spend more on defense, I guess, is a very dramatic thing. But over the course of 70 years, I guess it's not that surprising. I
2: think that's right. And I I think what's maybe jolting for for all involved is how that shift in perspective has come relatively recently. And it takes any country, put aside that it's Germany, you know, as somebody who looks a lot at defense institution building and democracies, you, you know, you 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 have to train an entire generation to that, to acculturate to that new mindset. So, for instance, if you had asked the Germans five six years ago, well, why do you have military forces? What are they designed to? In the German domestic context, there's not an answer to that. They don't say, oh, Russia is a threat. This is what we designed to. This is why we have military forces. That is counterproductive in their domestic context because they have been raised on a view that they have a a historic background that is regrettable, to say the least, and that military force may be a necessity for self-protection, but that's about all that they focus on. Now you're trying to get them to think much more strategically about, well, what are those capabilities we need in order to fulfill our portion of, you know, keeping – The Russians, for instance, away from Eastern European nations, from protecting, for protecting our borders to the South, from even contemplating being in overseas missions as part of a NATO or EU construct. That's just a very different way to look at things that has to hit a domestic you know, a constitutionally based domestic context that is completely unprepared for it. So I think they've actually been making admirable progress on that important foundational shift culturally. And then the funding piece will, will flow from that. It's happening later than it should have. But again, I don't necessarily think that's Germany's fault. I think the expectations on Germany have shifted relatively suddenly. Uh, given where we were, you know, throughout the history of the Cold War. And, and again, I, just to stress, it's not just 70 years ago, go back to 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the concern, maybe listeners won't remember this, the extreme concern about reuniting Germany at that time, and the fear that neighbors had that a reunited Germany would be a powerful Germany that could threaten its neighbors. So that was you know, even less time ago, at which we were trying to make all concerned, including the Russians, understand that Germany would not be a threat to the security of Europe, nor to then the the end of the, the the embers of the Soviet Union. Um, that was 1991. I'm sorry. You know, it's it, it Germany's just in an odd historical point right now, and I think the question is, can the relationship endure through this period, which I think it will, so that we kind of come out on the other side, Germany on the on the right track, nested well inside a, a Europe that's whole and free.
1: Well, let's cast our eye to some other countries if we can. Do you think NATO cares whether a country has a functioning democracy? Uh, I'm looking specifically at Poland and Turkey when I think about that question.
2: I think NATO cares um, for sure. there is a history of less than democratic countries um, being inside NATO, Turkey, obviously Portugal. So let me, I'll just stop with those examples. It is a big concern. And um, I think the question is, what can you, what are the levers you have to do something about? And here's where I think understanding the role of the European union, the EU is important because a lot of those uh, tools for norms, establishment for holding feet to the fire in democratic processes and the economic implications are are particularly strongly executed through the EU as opposed to through NATO. But NATO does have a role to play in terms of in the institution building of the appropriate role of the military in society and making sure that the military arm, that being NATO, of the, the Europe project stays in line with the other pieces of that project namely the democracy focus and the economic focus so it's a concern it's not unprecedented to have countries that are struggling with democracy but it could become obviously could become problematic if if there is a true you know right turn that or far left turn that creates much more totalitarian societies than is tolerable within nato
0: If we could stick with Turkey for just a second, because it's not just a matter of democracy. There's also uh, what appears at least, and you can tell us whether it is, a conflict of interest in Syria, where Turkey has very specific security concerns with the Kurds, whereas the United States and other parties have actually been arming the Kurds and uh, trying to get them to fight Islamic State and Assad. Do you think something like that is is actually serious or it's just a blip between allies?
2: I think I, the way I would approach that is that if you look at Syria more broadly, every sort of major trend we're seeing in the world geopolitical environment has played out inside Syria. You, you've named one that's important, and I won't sidestep that, but I do want to put it inside this context that You know, there there are many, many fathers to disaster in Syria. The central player is, of course, Assad himself. But the U.S.-Russia relationship obviously is playing out there. The differences, as you're pointing out, of allied interests, then there's the differences between those who are on the outside, whether they're NATO countries or Arab states, and the, the views on the ground of the Syrian opposition elements. You know there, there are just many many things going on there. One aspect of that is that the that there is a difference of viewpoint on the how to view the Kurdish group and their roles inside Syria, but also in a, a, a rush to add inside Iraq because there are there are Kur, the Kurdish national groups in Iraq and inside Syria, and then there is a separate group inside Turkey that is of concern to the Turks. And there is some difference of viewpoint in how the Turks, one in the West, might say conflate these groups. Um, The Turks might say how the United States and others might be ignoring the ties between these groups who are are separatists from the Turks' point of view. So yeah, that is definitely playing out is a stress on the relationship, but there are a lot of stresses in the relationship, almost too numerous to count between Turkey and its particularly Western European and U.S. allies. Uh, the Russia-Turkey connection, I think it's another, the way in which Turkey has absorbed, Turkey has absorbed over a million refugees coming out of Syria. So it has taken, borne the brunt of the refugee crisis of the NATO countries. So um, that's created its own blowback. But the, you know, there's no doubt that divide a viewpoint over the future of the Kurds or how to how to deal with the Kurds as an actor inside Syria is one of those elements that it creates strain in the relationship.
1: Well, then if we can bring this all home, <laughs> and as we are, as, as we're looking at NATO as a whole, do you think it still has room to grow? Or do you think it's kind of at max capacity right now? I know there's other countries on that border with Russia that would like to join. What is the point of contention?
2: There's no reason today to grow NATO. It is, there may be a point in the future. I don't think that NATO could never grow again. Um, But because of the strain being put on it right now to just to make sure that it has the capability to defend the Eastern Front, that's where the focus needs to be. You know, that doesn't mean that other countries shouldn't be on a path to eventual NATO membership. I think there is a value to that in the long term in terms of thinking about how to secure Europe more fully. But there's no doubt that the the Russians have um, forced upon the U.S. and Europe a conversation about its future and how the countries on its periphery play into the navigation of the the European US European and Russian futures and so the focus for now i think is appropriately on those partner nations such as Ukraine making sure that they have support from NATO as in, for instance the United States has been providing uh, begun providing some lethal assistance to help them defend themselves against Russian aggression. But for NATO, the focus is really um, first and foremost on making sure it can um, succeed in defending its own territory.
0: You know, um, that actually brings up just one final question for me, if you have the time. Yep. Okay. Final question I have is, is NATO in good enough shape at this moment to carry out its mission in case something horrible happened and war broke out with Russia,
2: I do, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I, the the you know the biggest question is the geographic advantage that Russia has if it wanted to do sort of a you know listeners might think of sort of the blitzkrieg analogy, sort of a fait accompli is what most people refer to it today, a kind of a quick grab of some NATO territory because they um, are quite proximate across the border and have very strong internal lines. They can move forces across Russia much more quickly than multiple different countries on, on, on the western side of that border can move across multiple borders. So I think the question is the time and energy and effort it takes to dislodge that as opposed to being able to prevent that, that's really where the the, the debate is. It would I, I think NATO is quite capable. I, I uh, don't wish to sound outlandish, but it is also a nuclear capable alliance, and there is a deterrent value to nuclear weapons. So I think it's quite, shown itself quite capable to deter Russia from wanting to think that's a good idea. But even if Russia were to do some kind of land snatch, I'm quite confident that the United States and its NATO allies would be able to dislodge that over time and in a way that would be for Russia quite expensive in in blood, treasure and time.
0: Kathleen Hicks, thank you so much for joining us and taking us through all this.
2: You're most welcome. It was a, it was a challenging tour to force across Europe, so I appreciate you, uh, I appreciate you giving me the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review, even if it's just a Post-it note on your mom's fridge. Transcripts of recent shows are now available at warcollegepodcast.com. And we're always happy to hear from you on Twitter at War underscore College or Facebook.com slash War College podcast. War College is me, Jason Fields and Matthew Galt. We will be back next week.